So let's start with a little bit of audience participation. Do we believe that God is powerful? Yes. Very good. Do we believe that God is loving? Yes. Do we believe that God is good? Yes. Okay. Then could somebody here please tell me why the coronavirus pandemic happened? Because the man ate a bat in China. We're not really that keen to answer that question, are we? Why have five million people worldwide been allowed to die? Why have 246 million people been allowed to get ill? And the suffering it has caused... Loneliness, depression, addiction, increasing domestic violence, businesses collapsing, an ever-increasing gap between rich and poor. Why, why, why? Anybody want to explain? Anybody want to take on this question? I mean, you must have thought about it. And let me tell you, if you haven't, every single non-Christian in our community has. Why does God allow such suffering. Many people come to the book of Job hoping to get an answer to that universal question. Maybe they heard that this is what Job is all about, but they will all be sadly disappointed. Why does God allow suffering? Well, Job never actually finds out. He never gets told But that doesn't mean that reading this book is a waste of time. Far from it. For Job finds out the answer to another question. And that question is, is God wise and just? Or to put it another way, does God always do the right thing to achieve the best possible outcome? And not just for one individual, but for absolutely everything that he has made. Every creature, every plant, every atom of the cosmos, as well as the entirety of the human race. Is God wise and just? And when you stop and think about it, that question is actually far more important than the one about why there is suffering on earth. Because when you know that God is wise and just and always working for the best of his entire creation, you have a new perspective with which to look upon the world. A new perspective that will help us to live in challenging times. Before we come to hear from the Bible itself, let me just explain to you how the book of Job goes about setting up this crucial question. After being introduced in the opening verses of chapter 1 to Job, who is described unequivocally as a blameless and upright man, a man who feared God and shunned evil, the book really gets going with a strange scene from the heavenly realm. God is in his command centre surrounded by a staff team of angels. And one of them, who seems to have the role of prosecutor, because that is what the Satan means, comes forward 
and asks an honest question about how God is running the world. He and God start talking about Job and the Satan makes a claim. He believes that Job is only good because God rewards him. He believes that Job only loves God because he's blessed and gets nice things. He believes that effectively Job is working the system. He obeys God so he gets what he wants. And we all know that covered love is no love at all. And after making his claim, this heavenly prosecutor has a suggestion to make. If God took all the good things that he had given to Job away from him, then he would be able to see Job's true colours. When Job has nothing, God will see where his heart truly lies. Now, strange as it may seem, God agrees to the Satan's suggestion. He agrees to this little experiment. So over the course of the next few verses, Job has all the good things in his life stripped away. His animals are stolen. His servants are killed and a house collapses on his sons and daughters, killing them all. He himself even becomes unwell. His skin is covered with painful sores from head to foot. Job literally loses everything apart from his life. And remember, he doesn't deserve this at all. God himself has described Job as a good man. In fact, in God's eyes, there was no one else like him on earth. So the test has been set. But what was the result? Was the Satan right? Did Job turn on God the minute his good things were taken away? Well, no, he didn't. Job fell to the ground and uttered these incredible words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job even fought off the temptation of his wife, who urged him to curse God and die, and instead managed to maintain his integrity. Indeed, the book says in all of Job's trials, he did not sin by what he said. So that Satan's hypothesis was wrong. It is possible to maintain faith in even the most extreme of adversity. And with that proved, he disappears from the book, never to be seen again. However, despite the results of the experiment now being in, the book of Job is not over. In fact, it's only just beginning. All of that I have said so far only takes us to the end of chapter 2. And there are another 40 chapters to go. The great bulk of the book is poor Job wrestling with his pain. He's in agony and he just cannot understand why. He has no notion whatsoever of the Satan's little experiment. All he knows is that he has done his best to honour God and now his life is the scene of utter devastation. And bereft of his cattle and his servants and in deep mourning for his children, scraping the sores on his body with a piece of broken pottery, Job hits the dirt. And for a whole chapter, he wails out loud and he curses the day that he was born. 
Now at this point, seeing his pain, three of Job's friends arrive to do what they can. And at first they grieve with him and they sit with him. But then they start trying to provide him with some advice. Job's three friends feel that Job would benefit if he just came to terms with why this suffering has taken place. That way it could be fixed and moved on from. And of course Job's three friends think they know why this series of tragedies has taken place. Job must have sinned. Job's friend's argument goes like this. God is by nature just. Therefore, he runs the world justly. Therefore, for Job to be suffering in this way, it must be the consequences of his bad behaviour. Job must have sinned. And it's an argument based on one big assumption. In this world, good behaviour always leads to blessing. Bad behaviour always leads to curse. And in their eyes, it was that simple. There could be no other explanation. If Job wanted to relieve himself of his agony, all he had to do was confess his sins and God would restore him. Talk about kicking a man when he was down. I'm sorry you're suffering, my friend, but it really is your own fault. You might not like it, but you deserve it. Suck it up and do something about it. We might sit here thinking, well, we'd never say anything like that. But I bet we've at least thought it. I bet we've judged someone's pain in that way. I've read Christians say this exact thing about the coronavirus many times. It must be God's judgment on our sin, particularly the sin of the West. Now, in this book, Job is horrified by their argument and their advice. Because he knows it just isn't true. He knows he is innocent. Not perfect, no. But he really has done his best to live for God. And therefore this suffering just cannot be a divine punishment for sin. But that then leaves Job with a problem. Here he is in a huge amount of pain. Pain that he in no way deserves. So what is he to think about God? Could it be that God isn't really as just as he once thought? Could it be that God runs his world in an unfair way? And for the next 30 chapters, Job goes on a roller coaster ride with those questions. At times he's confident God is just, God is good, he will see me right. At others, he is less so. In fact, the longer his agony goes on, the more and more desperate his struggle becomes. Just listen to some of these complaints. It's all the same, that's what I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. God assails me. He tears me in his anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. God has denied me justice, the Almighty. He made my life bitter. Can you see, Job never doubts the existence of God, as many people are tempted to do today when they struggle. Because Job knows that God created the world, there is no other explanation for that. But that means that somehow God has done this to him, or at least allowed it to happen. 
and that hurts. It hurts a lot. So as I said, for over 30 chapters, this argument between Job and his friends rages back and forth. They tell him he has sinned. He insists that he hadn't. They tell him he's a fool if he thinks he can pretend he's innocent. He demands that he is. But in vehemently rejecting his friend's mistaken assumption that this suffering must be punishment, deserved punishment, Job knows he's left with a problem. Where is God in this? How can he be just in this situation? And eventually, after exhausting his friends and exhausting himself, Job makes one final plea. He pictures himself in a heavenly law court and he demands that God turn up and explain himself. Listen to these words from Job summing up in chapter 31. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. We can hear the desperation in Job's voice. It's the same desperation that we hear in the voices of those at a funeral. The same desperation that we hear in the voice of a victim of child abuse or natural disaster or a terrorist bomb. Come on, God, where are you? Answer me. Explain to me how I possibly deserve this. Show me your justice. And these words may sound extreme, but they're utterly real, aren't they? And remember, God has said that they were in no way sinful. This is the understandable struggle of a person of faith going through the darkest of valleys. But having made his demand, Job now needs to hang on to his hat. For God is about to respond. God is about to turn up in person and answer Job's charge. And it will not make for comfortable listening. Because God's words are going to come direct from a storm cloud. Throughout this series, we have seen how God turns up and provides his people just what they need, just when they needed it. Well, God is about to do the same for Job. But God knows that what Job needs most of all is a change of perspective on life. And that never comes easy. For four whole chapters, God speaks from the storm cloud. I would love to read it all to you tonight, but time prevents us. I'm going to read us some extracts, which I hope will give us a flavour of this extraordinary conversation. If we have ever questioned God's justice, like Job did, and I have many times, we need to brace ourselves too, because the answers we need are on the way. Chapter 38, verses 1 to 18. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the room? Who made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, you may come this far, but no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown dawn its place that it may take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know this. On to chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time when they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labour pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wild. They leave and do not return. Who let the donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hill for pasture and searches for any green thing. Chapter 40, verses 1 to 24. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendour. Clothe yourself in honour and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Then I myself would admit to you that your own right hand can save. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze and its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. Yet its maker can approach it without a sword. The hills bring in their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies hidden among the reeds in the marsh. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure that the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it or trap it or pierce its nose? Well, well, let's pause there, shall we? And work out what all this means. Job has made the complaint that God is unjust. Therefore, he's unfit to run the universe. That is the complaint. How is God going to reply? 
Well, in chapters 38 and 39, God turns up and he takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows him how grand it is, how infinitely complex. And then God challenges Job. Job, were you there when I made the world? Were you there when I measured out the land and the sea and I created all the forms of weather? Do you see how many animals need feeding in every single second of every single day? Do you know what it takes to keep planets and stars in a line? Could you teach a bird to fly? Could you teach a hen to brood over its chicks? Do you, Job, have this power? Do you, Job, have this wisdom? Well, Job? No, I thought not. Now, God's response seems almost brutal given the circumstances of Job's suffering. But God knows that this is the exact thing that Job and us today need to hear. Throughout the book, Job has made a very basic assumption about God's justice. And that was that good people are blessed and bad people are cursed. That was the assumption that he and his friends used to explain away all the suffering in the world. But behind that assumption lay an even bigger one. Job assumed that he had enough perspective on life to make that claim in the first place. Job assumed that he understood the world well enough to demand that God behave in a certain way. Job assumed that he knew what was right in every situation. And God, with the precision of a surgeon's knife, has just cut that assumption apart. These pages of questions, and there are pages of them, is God demonstrating to Job that he has a very limited vantage point. He cannot see every single decision that God needs to make in every single moment of the day. He cannot see how every action God takes impacts the next one. He cannot even begin to understand how the universe is this complex, interconnecting sphere. Job doesn't have the power. Job doesn't have the wisdom. Job doesn't have the intelligence or ability, quite frankly. And therefore, therefore, Job is in no position to accuse God of anything. And neither are we. No position whatsoever. At the beginning of chapter 40, God takes this onto the topic of justice, which is what is at the heart of Job's complaint. And God effectively asked Job whether he would like to take on the task of micromanaging the world. Would he like to govern the world according to his assumption that every action that's good gets blessed, every action that's bad gets punished? That's how Job thought things should work, but could Job make that happen? Of course not. Job doesn't have the power. Job doesn't have the oversight. And matters of justice are far more complicated than simple black and white schemes. Do you punish the woman who stole a loaf of bread to feed her hungry children? Do you punish the man who lied to the German soldiers because he was hiding Jews in his house? Do you punish the person with mental health difficulties who, when unwell, got frightened and punched their care in the face? 
Our world is far more complex than we could ever imagine. It's never black and white. It's never as simple as blessing the good deeds and punishing the bad ones. The world just does not work that way. And yet, and yet, with all this incredible complexity, God is making sure in the long run, the right thing always happens. The very best outcome is achieved. And not just for one individual person, but for every single creature, every single person, down through the course of time. Could you do this, Job? Could you do this, Andrew Burnham? Could you do this, Isla Baptist Church? No, I thought not. In the second half of chapter 40 and chapter 41, God goes on another step further. He describes to Job two great beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. They sound a bit like a hippo and a crocodile, but they're on a massive scale. These animals are powerful. They could kill you in an instant. But in describing them, God says to Job, these two monsters, they're not evil. They're not evil at all. In fact, God is proud of them. They're like his pets playing along with all the other animals. What on earth is this about? Well, to understand, you need to know that Behemoth and Leviathan were part of ancient mythology. And they were seen as symbols of danger and disaster. So what God is saying is this. My world is amazing, but it's not perfect yet. My world is ordered, but it's still a little bit wild. My world is immensely beautiful, but it's still dangerous. It won't always be this way, but it has to be for now. For now, Behemoth and Leviathan need to be allowed to roam free. Now, God doesn't actually tell Job why. He just demonstrates that this is something he is in control of. And Job could not possibly understand it. And this is the closest that the book ever comes to answering the question about suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? Because we live in an amazing, complicated world that is just not designed to prevent it yet. One day it will be. Neviathan and Behemoth will roam no more. But for now, the world is broken and faith is required. You really do need to read these chapters to get the best of them. I encourage you to go home and do that. They are some of the most dramatic writing in the whole of the Bible. But I hope we get the gist of what is going on. Job accused God of being unjust And God replies by telling Job that he was in no position to make that claim. Job demands an explanation. God replies by simply inviting Job to trust in his wisdom. Job needs to trust that God is just. That God doesn't just have Job to look after. But by moment by moment he is ensuring the whole of creation reaches a just end. Now that 
cannot possibly have been what Job expected when he demanded that God turn up and explain himself. But as ever with God, he gives Job what he needed. He changed his perspective on life. And to Job's great credit, he does respond to God's invitation. With humility, he acknowledges that he has gone too far. And it's worth us hearing the word from the beginning of chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Well, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And that is a position that we would all do well to take up when we're exposed to the power and the wisdom and the justice of God. The book of Job then ends with a few important details. First of all, Job's friends are critiqued by God. Not only was their theology wrong, they were very uncaring with it. It is a warning for us all. Second, Job is commended as having spoken rightly before the Lord. Now that cannot possibly mean that everything Job said while he was complaining was correct, because frankly it wasn't. God isn't unjust. What it means is that God approves of us wrestling with him. God is pleased when we, rather than deny his existence, we try and talk to him about what's going on in our lives. He would rather we lament than ignore him. In case we're in any doubt, the most faithful thing that we can do as believers when we are struggling and when we don't understand is to wrestle with God in heartfelt prayer. And finally, the book ends with God restoring everything to Job that he lost at the beginning. In fact, he gives him back double. This isn't a reward. This is a generous gift. A reminder that God is always good, even when things are upside down. So to finally conclude, let me say this. God gave Job what he needed in a time of utter desperation. He gave him a new perspective. This book doesn't answer the question as to why good people suffer. Instead, it invites us to trust in God's wisdom. To trust in him rather than trying to work out the reasons for what's going on. As we struggle on through this pandemic, let's bring our grief and our pain to God. Trusting that he cares and believing that God always knows what he's doing. And remember, we have even more reason to do this than Job did. Because unlike him, we know Jesus. 
the God-man who suffered unfairly only to rise to new life. The God-man who made the way for the end of this broken age and a brand new one to begin. A whole new world is coming where justice and wisdom, love and goodness reign. And of that we can be assured even as we struggle in the present.